Chapter 13 of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clarica. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home, by Emily Post. Chapter 13 Teas and Other Afternoon Parties. Teas. Except at a wedding, the function strictly understood by the word reception went out of fashion, in New York at least, during the reign of Queen Victoria, and its survivor is a public or semi-public affair, presided over by a committee, and is a serious rather than a merely social event. The very word reception brings to mind an aggregation of personages, very formal, very dressed up, very pompous, and very learned, among whom the ordinary mortal cannot do other than wander helplessly in the labyrinth of the specialist's jargon. Art critics on a varnishing-day reception are sure to dwell on the effect of a new technique, and the comment of most of us, to whom a painting ought to look like a picture, is fatal. Equally fatal to meet an explorer and not know where or what he explored, or to meet a celebrated author and not have the least idea whether he wrote detective stories or expounded Taoism. On the other hand, it is certainly discouraging, after studying up on the latest Cretan excavations, in order to talk intelligently to Professor Diggs, to be pigeonholed for the afternoon besides Mrs. Newmother, whose interest in discovery is limited to a new tooth in baby's head. Yet the difference between a reception and a tea is one of atmosphere only, like the difference in furnishing twin houses. One is enveloped in the heavy gloom of the mid-Victorian period. The other is light and alluring in the fashion of today. A tea, even though it be formal, is nevertheless friendly and inviting. One does not go in church clothes, nor with ceremonious manner, but in an informal and everyday spirit, to see one's friends and be seen by them. THE AFTERNOON TEA WITH DANCING The afternoon tea with dancing is usually given to bring out a daughter, or to present a new daughter-in-law. The invitations are the same whether one hundred or two thousand are sent out. For instance, Mrs. Grantham Jones, Miss Muriel Jones, will be at home on Tuesday, the 3rd of December, from four until seven o'clock, the Fitzcherry, dancing. As invitations to formal teas of this sort are sent to the hostess's general visiting list, and very big houses are comparatively few, a ballroom is nearly always engaged at a hotel. Many hotels have a big and a small ballroom, and unless one's acquaintance is enormous, the smaller ballroom is preferable. Too much space for too few people gives an effect of emptiness which always is suggestive of failure. Also, one must not forget that an undecorated room needs more people to make it look trimmed than one in which the floral decoration is lavish. On the other hand, a crush is very disagreeable, even though it always gives the effect of success. The arrangements are not as elaborate as for a ball. At most, a screen of palms behind which the musicians sit, unless they sit in a gallery, perhaps a few festoons of green here and there, and the debutante's own flowers banked on tables where she stands to receive, form as much decoration as is ever attempted. Whether in a public ballroom or a private drawing-room, the curtains over the windows are drawn, and the lights lighted as if for a ball in the evening. If the tea is at a private house, there is no awning unless it rains, but there is a chauffeur or coachman at the door to open motor-doors, and a butler or caterer's man 
to open the door of the house before anyone has time to ring. Guests, as they arrive, are announced either by the hostess's own butler or a caterer's announcer. The hostess receives everyone as at a ball. If she and her daughter are for the moment standing alone, the new arrival, if a friend, stands talking with them until a newer arrival takes his or her place. After receiving with her mother or mother-in-law for an hour or so, as soon as the crowd thins a little, the debutante or bride may be allowed to dance. The younger people, as soon as they have shaken hands with the hostess, dance. The older ones sit about or talk to friends or take tea. At a formal tea, the tea table is exactly like that at a wedding reception, in that it is a large table set as a buffet, and is always in the charge of the caterer's men or the hostess's own butler or waitress and assistants. It is never presided over by deputy hostesses. The menu is limited. Only tea, bouillon, chocolate, bread, and cakes are served. There can be all sorts of sandwiches, hot biscuits, crumpets, muffins, sliced cake, and little cakes, in every variety that a cook or caterer can devise. Whatever can come under the head of bread and cake is admissible, but nothing else, or it becomes a reception and not a tea. At the end of the table, or on a separate table nearby, there are bowls or pitchers of orangeade or lemonade or punch, meaning in these days something cold that has fruit juice in it, for the dancers, exactly as at a ball. Guests go to the table and help themselves to their own selection of bread and cakes. The chocolate, already poured into cups and with whipped cream on top, is passed on a tray by a servant. Tea, also poured into cups, not mixed, but accompanied by a small pitcher of cream, bowl of sugar, and dish of lemon, is also passed on a tray. A guest taking her plate of food in one hand and her tea or chocolate in the other finds herself a chair somewhere, if possible near a table, so that she can take her tea without discomfort. Afternoon Teas Without Dancing Afternoon Teas Without Dancing are given in honor of visiting celebrities, or new neighbors, or engaged couples, or to warm a new house, or, most often, for a house guest from another city. The invitation is a visiting card of the hostess with to meet Mrs. So-and-so across the top of it, and January 10th, tea at four o'clock in the lower corner, opposite the address. At a tea of this description, tea and chocolate may be passed on trays, or poured by two ladies, as will be explained below. Unless the person for whom the tea is given is such a celebrity that the tea becomes a reception, the hostess does not stand at the door, but merely near it so that anyone coming in may easily find her. The ordinary afternoon tea given for one reason or another is, in winter, merely and literally, being at home on a specified afternoon with the blinds and curtains drawn, the room lighted as at night, a fire burning and a large tea-table spread in the dining-room or a small one near the hearth. An afternoon tea in summer is the same, except that artificial light is never used, and the table is most often on a veranda. Do come in for a cup of tea. This is Best Society's favorite form of invitation. It is used on nearly every occasion, whether there is to be music, or a distinguished visitor, or whether a hostess has merely an inclination to see her friends. She writes on her personal visiting card. Do come in on Friday for a cup of tea and hear Elwyn play, or Farish sing, or to meet Senator West, or Lady X. Or even more informally, I have not seen you for so long. Invitations to a tea of this description are never general. 
A hostess asks either none but close friends, or at most her dining list. Sometimes this sort of a tea is so small that she sits behind her own tea-table, exactly as she does every afternoon. But if the tea is of any size, from twenty upwards, the table is set in the dining-room and two intimate friends of the hostess pour, tea at one end and chocolate at the other. The ladies who pour are always especially invited beforehand, and always wear afternoon dresses, with hats, of course, as distinguished from the street clothes of other guests. As soon as a hostess decides to give a tea, she selects two friends for this duty who are, in her opinion, decorative in appearance and also who, this is very important, can be counted on for gracious manners to everyone and under all circumstances. It does not matter if a guest going into the dining-room for a cup of tea or chocolate does not know the deputy hostesses who are pouring. It is perfectly correct for a stranger to say, May I have a cup of tea? The one pouring should answer very responsively. Certainly. How do you like it, strong or weak? If the latter, she deluges it with hot water, and again, watching for the guest's negative or approval, adds cream or lemon or sugar. Or, preferring chocolate, the guest perhaps goes to the other end of the table and asks for a cup of chocolate. The table hostess at that end also says certainly, and pours out chocolate. If she is surrounded with people, she smiles as she hands it out, and that is all. But if she is unoccupied, and her momentary guest by courtesy is alone, it is merest good manners on her part to make a few pleasant remarks. Very likely, when asked for chocolate, she says, How nice of you! I have been feeling very neglected at my end. Everyone seems to prefer tea. Whereupon the guest ventures that people are afraid of chocolate because it is so fattening or so hot. After an observation or two about the weather, or the beauty of the china, or how good the little cakes look, or the sandwiches taste, the guest finishes her chocolate. If the table hostess is still unoccupied, the guest smiles and slightly nods good-bye, but if the other's attention has been called upon by someone else, she who has finished her chocolate leaves unnoticed. If another lady coming into the dining-room is an acquaintance of one of the table hostesses, the new visitor draws up a chair if there is room, and drinks her tea or chocolate at the table. But as soon as she has finished, she should give her place up to a newer arrival, or perhaps a friend appears, and the two take their tea together, over in another part of the room, or at vacant places farther down the table. The tea-table is not set with places, but at a table where ladies are pouring, and especially at a tea that is informal, a number of chairs are usually ready to be drawn up for those who like to take their tea at the table. In many cities, strangers who find themselves together in the house of a friend in common always talk. In New York, smart people always do at dinners or luncheons, but never at a general entertainment. Their cordiality to a stranger would depend largely upon the informal or intimate quality of the tea-party. It would depend on who the stranger might be, and who the New Yorker. Mrs. Worley would never dream of speaking to anyone, no matter whom, if it could be avoided. Mrs. Kindheart, on the other hand, talks to everyone, everywhere, and always. Mrs. Kindheart's position is as good as Mrs. Worldly's every bit, but perhaps she can be more relaxed, not being the conspicuous hostess that Mrs. Worldly is. She is not so besieged by position-makers and invitation-seekers. Perhaps Mrs. Worldly, finding that nearly everyone who approaches her wants something, has come instinctively to avoid each new approach. THE EVERYDAY AFTERNOON TEA-TABLE 
The everyday afternoon tea table is familiar to everyone. There is not the slightest difference in its service, whether in the tiny bandbox house of the newest bride, or in the drawing room of Mrs. Worldly of Great Estates, except that in the little house the tray is brought in by a woman, often a picture in appearance and appointment, instead of a butler with one or two footmen in his wake. In either case a table is placed in front of the hostess. A tea-table is usually of the drop-leaf variety because it is more easily moved than a solid one. There are really no correct dimensions. Any small table is suitable. It ought not to be so high that the hostess seems submerged behind it, nor so small as to be overhung by the tea-tray and easily knocked over. It is usually between twenty-four and twenty-six inches wide, and from twenty-seven to thirty-six inches long, or it may be oval or oblong. A double-deck table that has its second deck above the main table is not good because the tea-tray perched on the upper deck is neither graceful nor convenient. In proper serving, not only of tea but of cold drinks of all sorts, even where a quantity of bottles, pitchers, and glasses need space, everything should be brought on a tray and not trundled in on a tea-wagon. A cloth must always be first placed on the table before putting down the tray. The tea-cloth may be a yard, a yard and a half, or two yards square. It may barely cover the table, or it may hang half a yard over each edge. A yard and a quarter is the average size. A tea-cloth can be colored, but the conventional one is of white linen, with little or much white needlework or lace, or both. On this is put a tray big enough to hold everything except the plates of food. The tray may be a massive silver one that requires a footman with strong arms to lift it, or it may be of Sheffield, or merely of effectively lacquered tin. In any case, on it should be a kettle, which ought to be already boiling, with a spirit lamp under it, an empty teapot, a caddy of tea, a tea strainer and slop bowl, cream pitcher and sugar bowl, and, on a glass dish, lemon in slices. A pile of cups and saucers, and a stack of little tea-plates, all to match, with a napkin, about twelve inches square, hem-stitched or edged to match the tea-cloth, folded on each of the plates, like the filling of a layer-cake, complete the paraphernalia. Each plate is lifted off with its own napkin. Then on the tea-table, back of the tray, or on the shelves of a separate curate, a stand made of three small shelves, each just big enough for one good-sized plate, are always two, usually three, varieties of cake and hot breads. THINGS PEOPLE EAT AT TEA The top dish on the curate should be a covered one, and holds hot bread of some sort. The two lower dishes may be covered or not, according to whether the additional food is hot or cold. The second dish usually holds sandwiches, and the third cake. Or perhaps all the dishes hold cake, little fancy cakes, for instance, and pastries, and slices of layer cakes. Many prefer a simpler diet and have bread and butter, or toasted crackers, supplemented by plain cookies. Others pile the curate until it literally staggers, under pastries and cream cakes and sandwiches of pâté de foie gras or mayonnaise. Others, again, like marmalade, or jam, or honey on bread and butter, or on buttered toast or muffins. This necessitates little butter-knives, and a dish of jam added to the already overloaded tea-tray. Selection of afternoon tea-food is entirely a matter of whim, and new food fads sweep through communities. For a few months at a time, everyone, 
whether in a private house or a country club, will eat nothing but English muffins and jam. Then suddenly they like only toasted cheese crackers, or Sally Lunn, or chocolate cake with whipped cream on top. The present fad of a certain group in New York is bacon and toast sandwiches and fresh hot gingerbread. Let it be hoped for the sake of the small household that it will die out rather than become epidemic, since the gingerbread must be baked every afternoon, and the toast and bacon are two other items that come from a range. Sandwiches for afternoon tea, as well as for all collations, are made by buttering the end of the loaf, spreading on the filling, and then cutting off the prepared slice as thin as possible. A second slice, unspread, makes the other side of the sandwich. When it is put together, the crust is either cut off, leaving a square, and the square is again divided diagonally into two triangular sandwiches, or the sandwich is cut into shape with a regular cutter. In other words, a party sandwich is not the sort of sandwich to eat, or order when hungry. The tea served to a lady who lives alone, and cares for only one dish of eatables, would naturally eliminate the other two. But if a visitor is received, the servant on duty should, without being told, at once bring in at least another dish, and an additional cup, saucer, plate, and napkin. Afternoon tea at a very large house-party, or where especially invited people are expected for tea, should include two plates of hot food, such as toast or hot biscuits split open and buttered, toasted and buttered English muffins, or crumpets, corn muffins, or hot gingerbread. Two cold plates should contain cookies or fancy cakes, and perhaps a layer cake. In hot weather, in place of one of the hot dishes, there should be pâté or lettuce sandwiches, and always a choice of hot or iced tea, or perhaps iced coffee or chocolate frappé, but rarely, if ever, anything else. THE ETIQUETTE OF TEA SERVING AND DRINKING As tea is the one meal of intimate conversation, a servant never comes to the room at tea-time unless rung for, to bring fresh water or additional china or food, or to take away used dishes. When the tray and curator brought in individual tables, usually glass-topped and very small and low, are put beside each of the guests, and the servant then withdraws. The hostess herself makes the tea and pours it. Those who sit near enough to her put out their hands for their cup and saucer. If any ladies are sitting farther off and a gentleman is present, he, of course, rises and takes the tea from the hostess to the guest. He also then passes the curate, afterward putting it back where it belongs, and resuming his seat. If no gentleman is present, a lady gets up and takes her own tea, which the hostess hands her, carries it to her own little individual table, comes back, takes a plate and napkin, helps herself to what she likes, and goes to her place. If the cake is very soft and sticky, or filled with cream, small forks must be laid on the tea-table. As said above, if jam is to be eaten on toast or bread, there must be little butter-knives to spread it with. Each guest, in taking her plate, helps herself to toast and jam, and a knife, and carries her plate over to her own little table. She then carries her cup of tea to her table, and sits down comfortably to drink it. If there are no little tables, she either draws her chair up to the tea-table, or manages as best she can to balance plate, cup, and saucer on her lap, a very difficult feat. In fact, the hostess who, providing no individual tables, expects her guest to balance knife, fork, jam, cream cake, plate, and cup, and saucer, all on her knees, should choose her friends in the circus rather than in society. THE GARDEN PARTY The garden party is merely an afternoon tea out of doors. 
It may be as elaborate as a sit-down wedding breakfast, or as simple as a miniature strawberry festival. At an elaborate one, in the rainy section of our country, a tent or marquise with sides that can be easily drawn up in fine weather, and dropped in rain, and with a good dancing floor, is often put up on the lawn, or next to the veranda, so that in case of storm, people will not be obliged to go out of doors. The orchestra is placed within or near open sides of the tent, so that it can be heard on the lawn and veranda as well as where they are dancing. Or instead of tea with dancing, if most of the guests are to be older, there may be a concert or other form of professional entertainment. On the lawn there are usually several huge, bright-colored umbrella tents, and under each a table and a group of chairs, and here and there numerous small tables and chairs. For, although the afternoon tea is always put in the dining-room, footmen or maids carry varieties of food out on large trays to the lawn, and the guests hold plates on their knees and stand glasses on nearby tables. At a garden party the food is often much more prodigal than at a tea in town. Sometimes it is as elaborate as at a wedding reception. In addition to hot tea and chocolate, there is either iced coffee, or a very melted café parfait, or frosted chocolate in cups. There are also pitchers of various drinks that have rather mysterious ingredients, but are all very much iced and embellished with crushed fruits and mint leaves. There are often berries with cream, especially in strawberry season, on an estate that prides itself on those of its own growing, as well as the inevitable array of fancy sandwiches and cakes. At teas and musicales and all entertainments where the hostess herself is obliged to stand at the door, her husband or a daughter, if the hostess is old enough and lucky enough to have one, or else a sister or a very close friend, should look after the guests, to see that any who are strangers are not helplessly wandering about alone, and that elderly ladies are given seats if there is to be a performance, or to show any other courtesies that devolve upon a hostess. THE ATMOSPHERE OF HOSPITALITY The atmosphere of hospitality is something very intangible, and yet nothing is more actually felt or missed. There are certain houses that seem to radiate warmth like an open wood-fire. There are others that suggest an arrival by wireless at the North Pole, even though a much brighter actual fire may be burning on the hearth in the drawing-room of the second than of the first. Some people have the gift of hospitality. Others, whose intentions are just as kind, and whose houses are perfection in luxury of appointments, seem to petrify at every approach. Such people appearing at a picnic color the entire scene with the blue light of their austerity. Such people are usually not masters, but slaves of etiquette. Their chief concern is whether this is correct, or whether that is properly done, or is this person or that such a one as they care to know. They seem, like Hermione, Don Marquise's heroine, to be anxiously asking themselves, Have I failed today, or have I not? Introspective people who are fearful of others, fearful of themselves, are never successfully popular hosts or hostesses. If you, for instance, are one of these, if you are really afraid of knowing someone who might some day prove unpleasant, if you are such a snob that you can't take people at their face value, then why make the effort to bother with people at all? Why not shut your front door tight, and pull down the blinds, and sitting before a mirror in your own drawing-room, order tea for two? End of chapter 13